Welcome to Voices from the Cathedral, a podcast that brings you sermons, discussions, and other performances from the Cathedral of St. John the Navai in New York City. On Sunday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, Right Reverend Andrew M. L. Dicci, Bishop of the Diocese of New York, preached at the Christmas Eve Festal Eucharist. Merry Christmas. Please be seated. It is a joy to spend this Christmas Eve with you in this magnificent cathedral, my fifth since becoming Bishop of New York. The great good news of the last year in the life of this cathedral and our diocese was that my friend Dan Daniel, the one-time Bishop of East Carolina and Pennsylvania, accepted my invitation to serve for a season as the interim dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. We were already warm colleagues, but the partnership we share in the leadership of this amazing church and community has deepened and deepened what was already a treasured friendship. It is a pure pleasure to stand at the altar tonight beside him and to worship as well with the offerings and gifts of Kent Tridel and our cathedral musicians and singers, the phenomenal Susanna Phillips, and Paul Winter, one of the longest and best friends of St. John the Divine. Offer my greetings also to the priests and deacons and cathedral staff acolytes and vergers and ushers and volunteers, the florists who have made and shaped this service, and particularly Patrick Malloy, the canon for liturgy and the arts, who, like a ringmaster, has pulled us all together, lined us up, and put on this show. And of course, the clergy on my own staff who have come here tonight to join me in the offering of communion. To all of them and to you, my very best wishes on this holy night. Earlier this month, you know how sometimes you read something and it doesn't stay with you, but one line of it does? Earlier this month, I read an essay by Matthew Neil Null in the current issue of the Oxford American, in which he reflected on the rich and varied history of Regina Celli, a 350-year-old convent in Rome, which was turned into a prison in 1881. The essay is a kind of mixing of travelogue and nostalgia, personal reminiscence and architectural survey. But in the middle of the story, he wrote a line which arrested me confused me a little bit, excited me, and has remained with me. Prisons and asylums, convents and poor farms, halfway houses and nursing homes, these institutions have always drawn my eye. I think if nothing else works out for me, I can always go there. 
I was struck by two thoughts. That he would think that going to prison might be a solace for his troubles. His mingling of the consideration of prisons alongside convents, asylums next to nursing homes. All of these places exist outside the mainstream of social life, but they mean very different things to us. I can always go there seems to collapse them into a single phenomenon. And I believe I understand that's what he meant. And I'll say something about what I think that means. But my second thought was to reflect on my own experience that these places of the lost and forgotten, the exile and the solitary, are also or can be profound wellsprings of godly transformation. That may seem obvious in convents, less so in prisons, but all places touched with mystical properties and possibilities. It has been my practice for some years to go annually to Greenhaven Prison in Dutchess County to baptize all of the inmates who over the previous 12 months have been preparing to accept Jesus and the way of the baptized. These baptisms are done by immersion, and they are sloshingly wet, loud with laughter and shouting, chaos, holy in a strange kind of way, a little bit violent, utterly Pentecostal, and all against the background of the driving rhythm of an inmate gospel band. They are also undeniably transformative. I gather with the prisoners and we talk fiercely and freely of drowning the old man in the water that we may raise the new man to life. We talk of rising with Christ. I was blind, but now I see. A wretch. These men stream with water as they step from the tank. And I can see on faces suddenly thoughtful and reflective that they are already beginning to make the interior journey. We talk there about the capacity of Jesus to make perfect freedom behind stone walls and razor wire, and they reflect on their lived experience of it. They are men of such passionate religious conviction that they force me every time to ask of myself, what do I mean when I say as I do that I have been saved by Jesus? And then after three or four hours of church, I step back out through the prison wall into the night and find that I have to emotionally come back down from the great rollicking highs to which we were lifted inside. 18 or 20 men are baptized, but 250 are made new and no one sees and no one knows. Among my favorite Episcopal nuns are those in the community of the Holy Spirit. They have a convent here in Harlem 
and one up in Putnam County, which is also a farm. They're doing something amazing up there with bringing together sustainable, locally grown farming with the rolling, ongoing cycle of the daily prayer offices of the church. They are Episcopalians. They are well-seasoned nuns with decades of convent life, and they no longer eat anything that they have not grown. A few years ago, I was up there at planting time, and I put a young tomato plant into the ground. I still ask them when I see them how my tomato was doing, and they tell me it is just fine, but sometimes they tell me that it was delicious. One of the nuns told me several years ago that it is becoming harder and harder for them to differentiate between the holy food of the altar and the ordinary food of the field. Their whole lives seem to them to be so Eucharistic. Pilgrims are flocking to Melrose to walk beside these nuns for a season, to pray in the chapel and weed the fields, for these nuns are leading the way, they're way ahead of us into a sustainable, holy, sacramental, ecological future for an imperiled earth. They are making new learnings about intentional community. They're living close to the ground. They're preserving and protecting the creation. They pray without ceasing. They love Jesus, and they are discovering new ways of being nuns, but more than that, new ways of being people together before history and before God. These are big deals. Explosions of freedom, largely unseen and hidden in the most unlikely places. Convents and prisons. The writer spoke of the personal deep draw of such places for him of the last hope that they represent for the lost, for him when he is lost. He is right to think that, but prisons and convents, to say nothing of asylums and poor farms and nursing homes, are not the same thing. And as I have lived with his words, I have wanted to explore what it is that they share and that draw his eye. And I think that it is that they are all of them places that we either seek out and find when we are driven by longing, or choose from our desire, or are forced to by need or necessity, or are dragged to in manacles by others, or where we wind up when the world turns its face from us, or where we break down and can go no further. But however we get to these places, they are all of them, places where the false securities of this world the lies and half-truths that we tell ourselves and that we are told by power to survive the day are cast off by us or are stripped from us and we find that we are left with nothing on which to rely except our own eyes staring straight at God. It may even be that such genuine transformation as I see in my baptized inmates or in these wonderful nuns, or at least the possibility of such transformation can only happen in that way, in a place apart. Whether that apartness is physically geographic or inwardly emotional or spiritual, 
it seems that it must involve some element of remove. I think of Van Gogh's room at Arles or Henry David Thoreau's cabin at Walden Pond. I think of Nelson Mandela's cell on Robben Island or Martin Luther King's in Birmingham. Of Mother Teresa in Calcutta daily facing down God's eternal silence or the young boy Elie Wiesel in the barracks of Auschwitz. Of St. Julian in her anchorite cell at the church in Norwich or St. Anthony pushing back against the demons in the African desert. What extremes of lonesome drive moves the spirit of the 17-year-old gymnast alone on the balance beam at the Olympics, or the climber in his exhaustion waiting for God to come for him in a frozen crevice below the summit of Mount Everest? What wisdom is being ferreted out right now on this Christmas Eve in the intensive care rooms of the hospital just a few hundred yards from this pulpit? What speaks to their spirits? And what laughter is being raised right now in rooms where babies are being born? And what tears in the rooms of the dying? How do we comprehend such mysteries? How do we carry them and live with them? The writer said, this draws my eye. At the very least, yes, it draws the eye. And what was engendered in me from that single line I read in that essay, and which has been a refrain for me through the advent just past, is the nagging suggestion that life may happen in its fullest richness, not when we are speeding down the fast lane of the interstate, but when we are stranded in a heap on the shoulder of the highway, or getting more and more lost on a side street in the darkness of a strange city in the middle of the night, or when we pull out of the gridlock traffic to exit onto a road we have never heard of, going someplace we don't know where. The nagging suggestion that any worldly conception of success of the right track is actually a distraction from those things that really matter. But it is Christmas Eve, so let me say that in a different way that all of these hostels and shelters and tents and hovels and cells and hospital rooms, these convents and prisons, may be seen by us to really be holy crushes built by God, in which and so that his son might be born within us, where we might have the perfect possibility of a transformative experience of God in the most impossible place. If nothing else works out for me, the writer said, when I have failed before the world on the world's terms, I can go there, prison or convent, asylum or perkhan, and live by other terms by another's leave. These hidden truths, these hints and suggestions of the very important elusive something else are why Christians and really holy people of every faith have forever embarked on pilgrimage or sought retreat to find in the dislocation of journeying and travel 
and the privations of wilderness and hostel, the vulnerability and capacity for personal risk to open themselves sufficiently to the otherwise and previously unimaginable. To cast off the false securities of the world on which we customarily depend, those systems and economies, to discover or have shown to us the empty conceits which such uh, securities really are, that we might be made ready to come before God unencumbered. The story of Mary and Joseph and of the birth of Jesus is just such a story of dislocation and of what happened to them and what they discovered when nothing else was working out for them and, and how they came finally to their own place apart. Mary was with child and at the least auspicious time, she and Joseph were compelled to leave Galilee and make the arduous journey across the high country of Israel to Bethlehem to satisfy the need of the Roman tax collector for census. They come to us in the Christmas story out of a poverty well established by the evangelist as strangers on a pretty long hard road and as strangers knocking at the gate, immigrants and refugees. In Bethlehem, we are told, there was no place for them. When my friend was being beaten by a mob in India for the offense of founding a church to serve the untouchable, his attackers yelled at him, you are out of place. You are out of place. Perhaps the sojourners Mary and Joseph were out of place in Bethlehem unwelcome. Yet somehow in the stable or the cave or the shed or under a tent or outside under the stars, Mary gave birth to Jesus and laid him in the manger where the animals come to feed. No one saw and no one knew. Hard as stone like the prison and gentle as whispered prayer like the convent. And there the shepherds sought them out who had heard something that sounded to them like the voice and song of angels and then acted on what they had heard. And there in their crash, stable or shed or cave or tent or just the field, there in their crash, Mary and Joseph cast out on their own unseen beyond the eyes of any, with the world and its burdens and what passes in the world for reason and truth shaken from their shoulders, they found themselves staring straight at God. Then it seems with reason slain that they were able to look upon their newborn and believe the impossible thing, that he was the Christ, the Messiah, and there were angels too, whatever we are to think about that. Privation gave birth to want and want to hope, hope to credulity. And perhaps they found in that hour of possibility the eyes to see beyond crash and manger to the full unfolding gospel to come 
even the cross of their same Jesus, and to understand there at the beginning of everything the coming into being of a kingdom formed entirely out of the love of God, and understand for the first time the mind of God and the meaning of their own lives. Or maybe it was simpler, that they might look upon the wonder that is a newborn child and see just the obvious and the wonderful that God had done a new thing. These are the good tidings and great joys of our story. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem, unseen and unknown, in a place where no one was looking, where his parents were driven, where the shepherds found him, born to them there, and that that redefined everything and ultimately redefined them too. And that is how you tell truth from wish dream. It is never what is expected. It's not even what was wanted. So maybe Mary and Joseph always had to get out of Nazareth and get lost and find a different place apart in order to see and discern and discover the very newness of God. The stories of Christmas, of the birth of Christ, are so familiar to us, but they come to us tonight as invitation. May we let the wonder and mystery of this night, told in ancient myth and eternal longings, lifted in music and song, and surrounded by all of this sublime beauty, carry us away from the destructive assumptions of a world which is spinning away from itself to a place apart where we may look upon God with eyes made fresh. Not everything has to be clear to be understood. Let us watch and wait under the turning of the stars tonight and spend this time together in sojourn and journey and see this Jesus born to us born in us, that we may discover and discern a glimpse of what those men at Greenhaven and the nuns at Melrose already know, the freedom and the possibility down in the deep, deep, hidden truth of God, that at the coming of Jesus, it is a whole new world. Amen. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to Voices from the Cathedral. The Cathedral of St. John the Divine is the Cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of New York. It is chartered as a house of prayer for all people and a unifying center of intellectual light and leadership. People from many faiths and communities gather here to worship together, provide meals for the hungry, educate our youth, and host concerts, exhibitions, performances, and civic gatherings. You can find us online at stjohndivine.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NYC. That's S-T-J-O-H-N-N-Y-C. Check back soon for another episode.